Blog Talk Radio. Stevie B's Media Production is a part of the Shellcaster Network. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ by members of the Churches of Christ. With your host, Stevie R. Butler. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to the Gospel Light Radio Show. I'm your host this evening, Stevie R. Butler, from the great state of North Carolina, with my co-host, Tim Bench, from the state of Texas, Glenn McMillian, from the state of Texas, Courtney Carruthers, from the state of Illinois, Steve Cordell, from the state of Illinois, Dr. Frank Washington, from the state of Florida, Clay Phillips, from the state of Georgia, Brian Christian Coleman, from the state of New Jersey, and Robert Lee Johnson, from the state of of Florida. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful that you are tuning into our radio broadcast this evening. This radio show is brought to you by loving and faithful members of the Churches of Christ, and we would ask that you would take out your Bibles and study along with us. We have a very exciting show planned for your spiritual enlightenment and your edification. If you'd like to contact us while we're on the air this evening, just give me a call to the live show at 713-955-0508. If, I, if you have any questions or comments for any of my co-hosts, you can send your emails to my new email address, butlersteve1009 at yahoo.com. Or you can give me a call at Steve B's Me Production at the Carolina Studio at 910-491-6405. Now, again, this program is brought to you by members of the Churches of Christ. And if you need any assistance in locating a congregation in your area, Please feel free to contact us. Now, folks, get out your Bibles and stay along with us here on the Gospel Light Radio Show. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Before we go into our program for this evening, I would ask that you would bow with me in a word of prayer that we may thank God for this opportunity. Our most kind, gracious, loving Heavenly Father, the Father, Lord, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us to go through the various activities of the day and placing it on our hearts that we are on this broadcast and we are prepared now to present a portion of your holy and divine word. Father, we pray that you will be with my co-hosts, Clay Phillips and Tim Bench, on the broadcast this evening as they break into our listeners the bread of life. 
and also my co-host Steve Cordo as he answers the questions that are on the hearts of so many. We pray that you will bless their families that support their efforts. They may continue to sow the seed of the kingdom. Father, we pray that you will bless our listeners who are tuning in via blog talk radio as well as through social media. We pray that they may listen well and that their hearts may be pricked as they consider their eternal stance before you and their soul salvation. And it will cause them to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Father, we thank you so much for sending the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to die such a cruel death on Calvary's cross. For we recognize that without such a sacrifice, we will not have a hope of eternal life. Father, even now, we ask you to forgive us for the transgressions of our own heart. We know our flesh is weak, and we often fall short of thy will. Father, we pray that you will continue to bless us and keep us and love us all the days of our lives. And that we have been faithful unto death. Father, we pray that you will save us. For it's in Christ's name we do ask it all. Amen. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into the broadcast. Our speakers for this evening in the first segment, my co-host Clay Phillips. He serves as the evangelist for the Rose City Church of Christ there in Thomasville, Georgia. If you're making this proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And in the second segment, I have a question from my shouted out platform on social media, Facebook. I'll be posing to my co-host Steve Cordo. He serves as the evangelist for the East Park Church of Christ there in Danville, Illinois. And he'll be answering our question in that segment. And then to close out the show, my co-host, Tim Bench. He serves with the Oham Lane Church of Christ there in Abilene, Texas. He'll be making this proclamation of the gospel of Christ to close out the show. So open up your Bibles and open your minds. And let's have a great show. After the break, the next one should be that of my co-host, Clay Phillips. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Just for a 
listening to the gospel light radio show give your attention to the proclamation of the gospel of jesus christ now my co-host clay phillips and his subject god's call on our life good evening thank you brother butler for allowing me to be able to come and participate on block talk radio show it's good to see those that have tuned in with us as we proclaim God's unadulterated truth. We're living in some dangerous times. We're living in the times where uh, we need to understand that God has a way and will and always have delivered his people. I would like for you to turn with me now to the book of Acts, <clears throat> Acts chapter 7. Everybody turn the Bible with me now, Acts chapter 7. <clears throat> I want to commence reading at verse 20 and terminate at verse 31. Acts chapter 7, verse 20 through verse 31. Now, my subject is the call to freedom, the call to freedom, how God and God will call someone to deliver us. God have always, and so in the text, the uh, disciple Stephen decided to write about how God calls. So Stephen defense, and he deal with this, that God does call men to deliver us. <clears throat> now, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 20, the Bible says, in which time Moses was born and was exceedingly fair, and nursed up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, the word cast is means set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nursed him for her own son. 
And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came to pass in his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer for wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. Look at it. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they argued amongst themselves, or strove, the word strove means to argue, and would have set them at once. In other words, he would reconcile them. Whoa, 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 fellas. Again, saying, sirs, ye are brethren, look at it. Why do ye wrong one another? Oh, my God. Mm. Then verse number 27. But he that did his brother wrong, now notice now, he that did his brother wrong, thrust him away. In other words, pushed Moses aside, saying, Who made thee a ruler or a judge over us? Would thou kill me <laughs> as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when 40 years were expired, now this time Moses 80, there appeared to him in the wilderness of the Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flaming fire in a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him. Oh, my goodness. Look at this. Look at this. I want to use for subject, as I announce, the call to freedom. The call to freedom. Now, when you notice the Bible, God uh, used nonviolence in Moses' situation before when Moses went and first went to Pharaoh. Remember now, God used nonviolence. God has always tried to give a chance to the person that is committing the act of oppression, uh, the slave master holding slaves and mistreating them. God has always looked at will. They have said, wait a minute, hold on a second. So now understand this. The example of Moses is all about understanding the battle of the spirit and the flesh. It is understanding. That's what Paul said in the book of Hebrews. He said, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Uh, I mean, in, in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
but against principalities and power and rulers of darkness and high places. So what the Bible is telling us, we must understand the call of God for mankind is the battle of sin having dominion over us. Sin. So what man don't understand, what we don't understand, what we don't understand is that God called uh, to freedom is to free us from sin. For it is not in flesh and blood. But that this is what the devil have allowed us to do. The devil have allowed us to battle one another. Whites, blacks, Mexicans, and all of this. But the whole idea of freedom is all about sin. It's not about uh, blacks and whites and, and Indians and Mexicans, even though the devil used that as a dichotomy, used that as to destroy us, and he's been doing a great job all down through the history. Listen, God will not allow, I understand this now, God will not allow you to abuse his people. God will always have a call on somebody's life, on all of us. So the call today is on all of us. Now, now understand this. God called Moses. So the example of, about Moses being called to redeem Israel, God's people, from bondage. Listen, violence have never listened. Violet, why is it that people assume that violence can keep slaves as slaves? You, you, it don't work. You cannot, you cannot use violence and think that it's going to hold God's people. It, it somehow, some way, man believes that if I use violence. And so, so when, you, when you go all the way back, let me show you something. Now, turn back to Exodus. Let me show you something in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, chapter 1, brother. Everybody turn the Bible down to Exodus chapter 1. And let me, let me show you something here, because we understand why is it that people think they can use nonviolence and then destroy God. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8, now there rose up a new king over Egypt. Now remember now, this lesson, the Old Testament, is about prophesying uh, in the New Testament, the fulfillment of the prophecy to help us understand that uh, the Bible says that those things are written the old time was written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. So when you read the Old Testament, it is written for our learning. So here we find that Israel was oppressed by a new king. And so it says, and, and he said to his people, behold. So now understand that God put Israel in Egypt to protect him. And long as they was there, they were there. Then there come a new king, and this new king thought that, uh, like everybody else today, that they're going to they're gonna fight against us. No, 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 no. Listen to me. We as black people have always fought with whites, with America. Uh, all we asking you is to quit being violent against us. All we ask you is to be fair with us. You gave us the Bible. Now, understand this. The Bible is our guide on the salvation. So if you call yourself a child of God, a Christian, that is why when you look at the historicity of slavery, 
that it have always been that uh, those the slave masters have always tried to cover up, and even in America, they had what they call the Negro Bible. Now, the Negro Bible uh, did not have everything in it. What they did, they eliminated uh, Moses. <laughs> uh, there are scriptures that in the Old Testament that they eliminated, uh, for example, Exodus, uh, they eliminated Exodus because they didn't want uh, a Messiah to come, and Messiah is still going to come. You got to say what? Because God is in control. And then in Deuteronomy, the scripture in Deuteronomy talked about how you ought to treat those that you are employed. And one scripture they took out, turned to uh, uh, Galatians. I'm going to read this scripture. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 28. Tell you about the Galatians chapter 3 and the verse 28. And they took this scripture out. It says, that was in the Negro, in the Negro Bible. They gave the Negro what they want to give him. It says in 28 of Galatians chapter 3, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Good God Almighty. They didn't want us, they didn't want black people to know that. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Hello? So we become one in Christ. In the body of Christ, the Lord's church. Now, understand this, that when God called a deliverer, now in Acts chapter 7, we're going to look at something here. When God called a deliverer, uh, a deliverer must understand the stress that is created in the call. Let, let, let me show it to you. So when God called uh, the 12 apostles, Turn your Bible now to Matthew chapter 10. Let me show you the stress in the call. So now, in other words, you're going, if you're called, you're going to go through some stuff. Because the battle, understand now, the battle is not between black and white. The battle is between good and evil. The battle is between the flesh and the spirit. But we get caught up into the black and the white. Woo! Now listen, now listen. Jesus called 12 apostles in Matthew chapter 10. Now, I'm going to save some time. I want you to look at something here that is interesting in verse number 16. In verse 16, Matthew chapter. Notice now that the stress in the call. You're going to have some stress. You're going to go through some stuff. Okay? Verse 16 said, Behold, I send ye forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Woo! This is what has happened. This is, in other words, nonviolent have been God's anger. God said, listen, I want you to understand that I'm sending you forth as sheep, nonviolent, in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In other words, be nonviolent, harmless as doves. I want you to understand. Then it says, notice what it says in verse 17. But beware of me, for they will deliver you up into the council, and they shall scorn you in their synagogue, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. In other words, the opportunity to demonstrate the love of God 
that God has sent a redeemer is nonviolent. So when God says to, to the 12, listen now, you're going to be a testimony. You're going to be lied on. You're going to be whooped. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be stoned. My God, listen here. So here we find that Jesus is telling them, but this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Amen? This verse number 19 says, but when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. Now, he's talking about uh, uh, the early church. For it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. So Jesus is talking to his apostles. Well, apostles, not us. The Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing with the truth. Okay? Now notice in verse 20. For it is not ye that speak it, but the Spirit of the Father which speaketh in you. But notice in verse number uh, 21. And the brother shall deliver a brother to death. This is what's going to happen. And the fathers, the children, and the children shall raise up against their parents and shall, and listen, and, and they shall kill them, put them to death. Wow. Verse 22 says, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he shall, but that ye endure to the end, ye shall be saved. So listen, believers, body of Christ, the Lord's church. Listen, God, people, listen, you endure to the end. We got to learn to be what God wants us to be. We, we got to learn to suffer for the opportunity to tell somebody. When you go in the grocery line, don't argue with folks about whether a mask on or not. They say, I'm sorry. Woo. <laughs> Jesus said, now, if somebody slap you, turn the other cheek. That's that. That's an opportunity to show God has delivered you. Woo! Somebody ought to say amen up in here. And then, now let's go back to our text, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Now understand this. Understand this. That the only reason that people, that blacks and whites, and, and we, we have racism, the only reason we have racism, listen to me now, listen. The only reason there's racism in America or anywhere else is because we don't know or they don't know or realize the imperfectness, the imperfectness of mankind, that all of us are sinners. When do you get off start thinking you better than somebody else because of the color of your skin? You're, you're not better than anybody else because of the color of your skin. All of us, uh, uh, the problem is the devil will have you to do anything. He will put so much stress on you to create uh, a, a imperfect or a persecution on people because of the color of the skin, and we all are the same. And we all going to stand before God at the judgment. Okay, let, let, let me show it to you. Turn to, to Romans chapter 7. Verse 13, let, let me help you out. See, what, first of all, I got to do is help us understand that everybody, not everybody, everybody, uh, uh, no good, sinners. 
So they don't say you disliking me because of the color of my skin. They don't say me disliking you because of the color of your skin because all of us. And see, that's why this is what the important we understand. The call is a not a call us from this flesh the, of, of, of color of our skin. It is a call us from the sin in our skin. <laughs> let, let me show it to you. Romans 7, 13. Was then that which is good, now Paul is speaking, Paul said, was then that which is good made death unto me? In, in other words, and then Jesus saying, how can that be? In other words, how can it be that people that call themselves children of God, people of God, they're the ones that are more violent than anybody else? How can that be? How can people that call themselves Christians up in church and go and lynch people? How can that be? How can you call a person out the name, and I'm going to show you something in a few minutes, out the name and dog them out and call yourself a child of God? How can that be? The Apostle Paul said, how can that be? He said, let me, let me pause. Let me show you. I'll tell you. He says, he says, God forbid. In other words, God don't want you to be like that. God forbid. But sin, it is sin that that causing all this trouble. When Adam and Eve sinned in the God of Eden, we are trying to get back to God. Amen? God called us to freedom from sin. This whole Bible, the purpose of us worshiping, the purpose of us serving God, reading the Bible is about deliverance from sin. God made me my color. God gave me this color. God gave me your color. It's not what you, you didn't earn no, no color. You didn't earn nothing. The Bible says, Paul says, I want you to understand sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might be become exceedingly sinful. In other words, God said, the reason why, Paul said, the reason why God, how does all this happen? Because God wants sin to be sin. He wants you to understand. It is not in us. It is not in white, black, blue, green, yellow, purple, whatever color you are, nationality you are. It is not in your color. It is sin. And Paul said, I want you to understand this. Because Paul had an issue too, you remember? Then in verse number 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual. But I, notice now, but I am kind of sold under sin. Woo! I we need somebody to deliver us from sin. White, black, whatever we are, we need to be delivered from sin. I'm, I'm sick and tired of folk arguing about black folk and black folk, go where you came from. I'm trying to get where I came from. God and Eden. We all came from Adam and Eve. I'm trying to get back there. Then Paul going and says, and take some time. I've dropped down to verse 18. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find out. So Paul said, listen. If you hate your brother, you call somebody an N-word or a W-word or whatever, it, it demonstrates it demonstrate you are, have not been delivered from God, that you have not been delivered. And so you need a deliverer. 
But there is one. Notice now, the Paul going down and says in verse number 24, he said, oh, wretched man that I am. He said, I want you to understand this, oh, wretched man that I am. If you're a man, you're wretched. And quit talking about we, we're not all men. That's why uh, the white accepted evolution. And, and, they, and they know the Bible teaches that. They know what the Bible teaches. God sent us a redeemer. And you're talking about we, we, uh, the black man is part um, of uh, Have you lost your mind? Okay, okay. Now, it says, I thank God. Paul said, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And so you dealing with the flesh is all about sin. It's all about sin. Now let's go. Now let's go back to our text. Uh, this, uh, we got to look at. I want to look at three things. I got about according to my time. I got uh, fourteen minutes. There are three things I want you to notice about Moses. God called Moses <laughs> to be the deliverer, and let us learn some things from Moses. Okay, let's learn something from this. The Book of Acts, chapter seven. First of all, let me let me say this. Uh, uh, for I go any further, that I like verse 25. Notice verse 25 of Acts chapter 7. For he supposed, that Moses now, supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver them. But notice what it said. But they understood not. And that's what's wrong with churches today, the body of Christ. Because they understand not the word of God. Now, now, now Moses said, why did Moses say I thought they were understood? Because here is Moses, the deliverer. He is the deliverer. God sent him to call to deliver Israel, which is an example of Christ delivering us from our sins. Okay, but notice in verse number, verse number 20, in which time Moses was born. In other words, in, 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 a, in God timing, God timed that thing just right. You remember in Exodus uh, chapter 3, now chapter 1, it talked about Moses being uh, born. In chapter 3, it talked about uh, how <laughs> Moses was born and was found and nursed up in his father's house. In other words, in whom time, for the right time. Pharaoh had heard that there was going to be a Messiah, that there was going to be a deliverer. And so that's the only reason anybody would take stuff out of the Bible, not preach the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God. It's because they don't want folks to know the truth. That, that, that's the devil. That's that, in, that's that flesh manifesting itself. That's sin in us manifesting itself. So here the Bible says, uh, which in which time Moses, in which time Moses, time that they was uh, killing the two years old. Now remember the same thing happened to Jesus when Christ was born. Okay? So Moses saying, I thought y'all understood. Y'all told me. Now how did Moses know he was going to be the deliverer? How did tell me now, how did Moses know he was going to be the deliverer? If, if he, he didn't he was raised in his father's house. They told him the truth. So by the time his mother and them got him going on and put him in Pharaoh's house, Moses understood the background. 
of his life. So he was waiting to redeem. So uh, three things here about Moses. Number one, number one, uh, Moses, we'll look at Moses' problem. Number one, his problem was, uh, the first thing was the problem of intensity. The problem of intensity. Number two, the problem of insecurity. The problem of insecurity. And number three, now I know I'm going to have time to unbox all of this, but I'm going to hit it. The problem of inadequacy. The problem of inadequacy. Now, the problem of intensity, in other words, we read on down. Now, let's look and see what the Bible says uh, in verse 22. The Bible says, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deed. Look at Moses. Moses. God put him where he wanted to be because you need to know your enemy. <laughs> you need to know your enemy. The Bible says, be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, has a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. So God said, Moses, you're going to be the deliverer. You need to know your enemy. And God put him in the house of Pharaoh. God, tell me God don't send a deliverer and put him where he wanted to put him. You can't, you can't hinder God deliverer. And the Bible says in verse number 23, and when he was full 40. Now, this is the time where it's in uh, the intensity of Moses. In other words, Sometimes we try to do God's job. And there are some preachers that think they can do God's job. You, you let God do what his job is. My job is to preach the word, to be in, in season, out of season, reprove with brute, exalt with all long suffering and doctrine. My, my job is to teach the word, to preach the word, because it is the word of God. Listen, the reason why America is getting worse is because we are not preaching and teaching the word of God and believing it. Oh, we 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 are uh, quoted we doctors and lawyers and all that stuff, but we are not living. We 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 believe that I got the power. So Moses rushed ahead into the delivery. How you know? He says right here. Uh came to pass. And when, it, and when he was full forty, it came into his heart. God said, in his heart, this is his brothers, children of Israel. <laughs> Seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him. Now, here is Moses doing something God didn't tell him to do, not to physically go and jump on somebody and kill them. So Moses went and killed the Egyptians. Look at it. Thought he was doing something. And that's why in verse uh, 25 it said, for he supposed. <laughs> I, I, I've done that. I've been preaching a long time. I've been preaching 48 years. There been time I, I thought that folk understood what I was doing, what I was saying, what I was trying to do, but love, but no, they understand. Because I rushed into some things, and I shouldn't have rushed into it. Moses should not have rushed into it. Amen? The Bible says in, the, in Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? But it also says, unless they be sent. Moses, I, God hadn't sent you here yet, Moses. Moses, Moses turned upon himself. 
Get anxious, couldn't wait. I, I know I'm delivered. <laughs> Look at it. I know I'm delivered. And the Bible said, but they understood it not. Uh, watch it. Moses, like, I can't believe y'all don't understand. Y'all told me I'm delivered. <laughs> Notice in verse 26. And the next day, and the next day, he showed himself unto them as they stole and argued amongst themselves and would have, did most would have set them at once or at one or reconciled them. Again, saying, you know what most most jumped in there? Sirs, dear brethren, why do ye wrong one another? You're brethren. Why you wrong one another? <laughs> but he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away. Push Moses aside. Make it out of the way. Saying, who made you a... You ever felt like that, preachers? I know I have. Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Would that kill me? And see, and folks know that they know something about you. Here, here it says, would that kill me? As thou did it, the Egyptian, yesterday? See, God never called... God has not called a perfect person but Christ. Christ is the only perfect one that delivers us from sin. But he uses Moses here to give us an example. And so here, now follow Moses' problem because he rushed into it. Notice now something interesting in verse 27. Notice now in uh, verse 27. No, no, verse 26. Interesting. In verse 26, it says, And the next day he showed himself. <laughs> See, the problem was, look at Moses walking around like he's somebody. <laughs> I killed an Egyptian. I've done this. I've done that. I got I got a, my, my AA degree. I got my BA. I got my master's. I got my doctrine. I'm, I'm, I'm this. I'm that. Let me show myself. But that's not what God wanted you to do, Moses. You suppose that they would understood, didn't you? But they don't. M most people don't understand. When God sends a deliverer, they don't understand. But Moses said, I thought y'all understood. And the Bible says that Moses fled. But notice now, he fled and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. In other words, God has to send you in a strange land that you can learn. That's why if you said the Bible, elders in the congregation, in the church, when have to be ordained, they have to have children. Uh, Titus and Timothy talked about it, that an elder has to have children because the elders are to help the Word of God, know the Word of God. How do you know the Word of God? You know the Word of God because you, when you got children, your children will help you understand. <laughs> you get the whole of yourself. They'll help you understand. When you get children, then you, can, then you can start talking and helping everybody else. Then you can help other people. You're going to be rushing in the stuff. You'll be so anxious. You 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 back down. You you understand. You you become humble. Now look at the call. 
The Bible says in verse number 30, and when 40 years, now Moses 80 now, were expired, they appeared to him in the wilderness on Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord, in a flaming fire, in a burning bush. Now notice now, it says when 40 years were expired. Now, but now if you look at uh, verse number 23, it says, and when he was full 40 years. Now, but it says in verse number 30, when 40 years were expired. Now, what do you mean by full 40 years? That means he was, that means he was physically looked good. He, he had everything he needed physically, but he didn't have everything mentally. Now, so when the Bible says in verse number 30, and when 40 years were expired, that means that God was <laughs> working in him with him. God getting him right to send him. And there's a fire. Jeremiah said, like, fire. Shut up in my bone. I ain't got time to preach all this. But when God calls you, when God calls me, uh, you must not get over-intensified. Number two, you must not become uh, to the point where you are uh, insecurity, and I'll, I'll talk about that next time, and then not only that, inadequacy. And we'll talk about all that on the next time. But I'm no speaker, but the Clay Phillips, remember this, keep it real. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Give your attention to the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot shake the
listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Shout it out question. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the portion of the broadcast where I have a question for one of my co-hosts and also want to encourage our listeners to get involved in that uh, okay, we're on Facebook that's entitled, I, I can hear you talking, Steve. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, let me go ahead and bring in my co-host, Steve Corley. He serves as the evangelist for the East Park Church of Christ there in Danville, Illinois. Steve, how you doing this evening? Doing well, trying to keep warm. We got more snow coming in. So, uh, but other than that, we're doing all right. All right. Now, I have a question for you from an anonymous query from the state of Virginia. And this is quite a doozy. The scriptural reference that's given for this question is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Let me go ahead and read that right quick before I ask you the question. The text says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. 
for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And here is the question. What is the fivefold ministry that's talked about in the Bible? Let's say you to this question. Well, question uh, I thought was a little bit vague as to exactly what our inquirer is asking. So I'm going to approach it from uh, the point of view of discussing the five positions and how they differ, and especially whether or not uh, we still have them today. So uh, I'm screen sharing right now for those that are on Facebook, and here's the text that because uh, they couldn't hear uh, Stevie reading it. Uh, but Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I kind of put in a follow-up question to this. Uh, that is, why did Jesus give us these offices in the first place? Why make the prophets or uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, uh, or pastors uh, and teachers? Well, the simple answer is to equip us for the mission uh, that he gave the church or the job that he gave the church, uh, and that is uh, to build up and to uh, evangelize. Now, I don't know who came up with this, but uh, someone came up with the uh, saying that uh, Jesus came to build a mighty army, not a massive audience. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in the 21st century, which are we? Are we being the audience that's sitting there not being built up, not trying to reach out, or are we going to be the army that he wants us to be? Because if all we do for Jesus is come and sit in church on Sunday for a couple of hours and listen to the sermon and sing a few songs, we're not really doing the job that we are supposed to be doing. So to uh, do this, I, I believe that these four, uh, five offices here are there for what I call spiritual bodybuilding. That is to strengthen the body of Christ. That's the main responsibility. And then there's uh, some others we're going to get into here. The growth is going to be helped by these uh, offices, by these positions. And John, uh, James Kaufman, who was a longtime preacher in the Lord's Church and a teacher, uh, he's been uh, gone now for several years, uh, he's made a comment on these verses saying that this is a characteristically Pauline insertion. In other words, this is typical of Paul to say something like this, and that Paul was prompted by his mention a few moments earlier of Christ filling all things, which of necessity meant that he filled the church. So how did Jesus fill the church? He did it in the manner in view here through the faithful preaching of men in all generations who declare the saving message. And then Kaufman quotes F.F. F. Bruce, who's a New Testament scholar from the, the last century, about two pairs of offices in view here, the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and pastors uh, or teachers. And the first pair, uh, that is the uh, apostles and prophets, they were effective in the founding of the church and in, in getting the church going in the early days. The others are still with us uh, today and are needed for growth. Now, let's look at, the, first of all, the apostles. What does this mean? Because I think a lot of confusion comes about with these various offices because people do not understand biblical terminology. And it gets misused, and I'm going to touch on that here in just a minute. And I think that might be playing in to the reason for this question, at least a little bit. So what does apostle mean? Well, it comes from a Greek word. Remember, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. Koine just means common. It was the common language in the Mediterranean world of the day. Uh, it comes from a word that means to send forth. And the apostles were men empowered or set apart with special gifts so that they could impart to others. 
And at the time, they needed these gifts to show they had authority from God to do these things. Uh, They didn't have the New Testament written yet. The Old Testament was written and completed, and that's what they use when you see, for instance, in Acts 17, where the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the scriptures daily to see what Paul Paul said was true. They said, okay, Paul, we hear what you say. We're going to look at the scriptures, the Old Testament. We're going to check it out here. Okay, yeah, what you say checks out. And then they knew that that a person was, uh, was teaching properly. Now look at Acts chapter 8, verse 18, where we see Simon. This is the one commonly known as Simon the sorcerer. He noticed that through the Holy Spirit, or the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, and he offered them money, saying, hey, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter was livid. Peter uh, was very angry with him. Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of the Holy Spirit could be uh, purchased with money. And Simon, uh, just before this happened, was baptized into Christ. He's a believer. He's a Christian. He just sinned, and he was told to pray for repentance. That's the only time we're told to pray for repentance. We're never told to pray for salvation. The sinner's prayer uh, to become a Christian doesn't exist in Scripture. But once we are saved, then we can pray for forgiveness, and that's what he is told to do. He went to them to try and purchase this. Apparently, When we look at Peter's response, he was wanting this maybe power to show off, to make money, to gain prestige, but that's not why God gives us gifts. That's not why God gives us abilities to show off. He gives us abilities to serve. Now, today we don't have these miraculous gifts anymore. I'll talk about that in a minute, but we've got talents. Uh, Your talent may be you're uh, a good listener who can help someone through a personal problem. Or maybe like a friend of mine years ago when he was talking to someone trying to get some missionaries to go to the South Pacific, he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I'm not a preacher or a teacher. I'm just a carpenter. Hey, we need carpenters. We're trying to build a school right now. We don't have the carpenters or the electricians or any of the skilled trades we need to build those. So that was his gift or his talent or whatever you want to call it was carpentry. And he would go and he would help people. Uh, in need to build things, uh, so so he we have those kinds of gifts and abilities today. Now in Luke chapter six, we see Jesus chose twelve of his disciples, whom he named apostles, and gave them uh, uh, the ability to go out and uh, use uh, certain powers. And the the twelve that we normally think of, remember Judas eventually dropped out; he eventually uh, hung himself uh, after uh, he betrayed Jesus. We also, and then um, uh, Matthias was um, uh, put in his place, and then later on came Paul. And then Barnabas, we see in Acts chapter 14, is also an apostle. And there are some others throughout the scripture we, that we don't really know anything about, but they were apostles. So it's not just the 12 that went with Jesus uh, and followed him that were apostles. There were others. And Jesus had promised them that they would be able to perform certain miracles. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse uh, 11, where Paul is uh, trying to establish and defend his, his apostleship. And then verse 12, or, yeah, verse 12, he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So they had signs, they had wonders, Paul had them, and apostles could perform these miracles. And here's just a, a few uh, uh, where the miracles are talked about. Mark chapter 16, Jesus told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And in in my name, uh, these signs shall follow. And he lists several things, uh, and one of uh, which was to be able to heal the sick and then to also handle, uh, drink poisonous things and handle uh, uh, any any uh, vipers, snakes, things like that. And in Acts chapter 28, Paul was shipwrecked on Malta. He healed someone who was sick, and he also got bit by a snake. I want to just do a little sidebar here. If you hear about snake handlers, typically they get bit. If they live through it, they get really sick, they recover. That's not a miracle recovery. When you look at what happened to Paul in Acts 28, he got bit by a snake, but he shook it off and went on about his his work. So just keep that in mind. The snake handlers out there are not doing it according to the book of Acts. And then we also see that Paul could speak with other languages, 1 Corinthians 14, or tongues. Those are bona fide languages, and we never read of Paul using an interpreter, so we know there are several languages there that he spoke. Uh, And then in Romans 15, verse 19, there are other miracles and things that we don't have a record of, but they they are attested to as having uh, happened. Now, when Paul was in Corinth, he acted according to his calling as an apostle. When they tried to dispute with him, uh, he preached the gospel. He showed he had the authority from Jesus to be able to carry out this office as an apostle. He performed miracles in places like Lystra and Ephesus, and through all these signs showed that he was uh, ordained by God to do this. Now, here's an important point to remember. There is no biblical basis for the idea that apostles... Uh, in the usual New Testament usage of the word, establish any line of uh, descendants to later generations. In other words, plain and simple, we don't have apostles anymore. Kind of interesting, because there are some denominations out there that claim to have apostles. We were at the uh, Atlanta Hartsfield-Jackson Airport a couple of years ago, waiting for luggage, and there were two ladies there, a little bit older, talking to them and found out they were in town for a church conference of some kind. I don't remember their denomination, but one of them was supposedly an apostle in this denomination. And that opens up a whole other discussion, but the the apostolic age ended when uh, John died. We believe he was the last of the apostles to die. Uh, He was the last one we don't have anymore. And so we have to understand that, that uh, they're not here uh, with us anymore. But now, what about some of these other things that were asked about? What about prophets? Well, it's kind of interesting. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, but there's this little note in there that whether there are prophecies, they will fail. See, the idea of predictive prophecy was going to come to an end. There wouldn't be a need for it anymore. And I know, again, there are people today who claim to be prophets. I've even talked to some of them, and I've even had some tell me that uh, that they have uh, various prophetic utterances to make and and while I'm waiting, I had one tell me, well, I don't know about this situation. I'm waiting for a word from the Lord, then I'll give my prophecy. Okay. But you have to remember, if you're watching this and you claim to be a prophet or know anyone who does, remember that the book of Deuteronomy tells us that a prophet has to have a 100% batting average. In other words, if one prophecy doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet. But we don't have that kind of prophecy anymore. But now the prophesy can also be used in forms to reference those who are simply declaring God's word or preaching God's word. We still have preachers today. We still have to proclaim God's word. Prophets received what they got via revelation. Paul, uh, as an apostle, also received uh, the gospel through revelation. 
Uh, he says in Galatians chapter 1 that I would have you to know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. In other words, this wasn't just given to me by tradition. This was not given to me by a bunch of, uh, of uh, people sitting around the campfire making up stories about God. I neither received it from man nor was I taught it. I received it through revelation from Jesus Christ. Uh, the mystery was made known to me, he told the Ephesians, by revelation. So this was given to him supernaturally. Then so what about evangelists? Well, the evangelist, the, the word means a messenger of good. Now, I used to put this on my business card, that I was the evangelist for whatever congregation I was with, and people would typically look at it and get this look on their face and oh, you're not the pastor, you're, you're just an evangelist. Well, I'm not just an evangelist. I was an evangelist. I evangelized. I taught people the gospel. Now, the main evangelist we look to in Scripture is, of course, Philip, when he went in and took the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, evangelists today are people typically who are more like itinerant preachers. They just travel from church to church. They hold gospel meetings or revivals or whatever you call them. Sometimes their wife might go with them and sing solos in church and that sort of thing. But they were, they were known then for being primarily proclaimers, and apparently based on what we see with Philip, would go from place to place. He was told to go down to the desert road, and uh, he preached to the eunuch there, and then he was taken away, uh, we are told, after that. And I don't think we – off the top of my head, I can't think of a, of a reference of Philip after that uh, inc uh, incident with the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. So evangelists today, are they needed? Yes. We still need to proclaim the gospel. What about pastors and teachers? This is probably, I would say, pastor is probably the most misunderstood term in the New Testament. Pastor and preacher are typically used interchangeably in many uh, church settings, particularly uh, denominational settings. But here, here's what you have to understand. Okay, I am a preacher. I'm a minister. I am not a pastor. Now, some people are probably wondering, huh, what? Well, if you look at First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1, I do not meet all the qualifications to be an elder or a shepherd or a pastor. You know, for one thing, I have to have believing children. I have a child. Uh, she prays and that sort of thing. She's not yet become a Christian. She's only eight years old. Excuse me, eight and a half years old. Got to get that extra half in there. Uh, but she um, is not at a point where she can make a decision uh, for Christ. So that right there, I don't meet that particular qualification to have a, a uh, believing child, as, as I believe the, the, the New Testament teaches. Now, the rest of it, um, you know, being the husband of one wife, I've only been married once, uh, and uh, I do teach and do the other things that an apostle, or that, excuse me, that a, a pastor or a shepherd or a bishop is supposed to do. And those are all interchangeable terms for the uh, same office. Now, McClintock and Strong gives us a nice summary of what a uh, pastor or bishop is supposed to do. One is to feed the flock of God. That is to make sure that they are taught. They're talking spiritual feeding here. And then to guide the members uh, in the pathway of duty and holiness. Elders are to set an example. They are to uh, teach. They are to uh, be there to sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, counsel if people uh, have questions or concerns. And then guard, uh, so far as possible, the moral and spiritual uh, evil of every kind. Remember that in his last meeting with the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, Paul warned them to protect the f uh, flock from ravenous wolves who will arise from among you. you know, either you're going to get uh, members who rise up 
and uh, lead the church away or even from among the ranks of the elders. I think I could go either way there, and I have know of situations where elders have turned out to be wolves and then church members um, have themselves turned out to be wolves. Um, but in the discharge of these duties, elders are to take them very – or pastors are to take it very seriously – because God uh, expects them to guide the flock, make decisions. And sometimes, i got to tell you, it's going to be tough. I've sat in elders' meetings, and I've sat in uh, business and leadership meetings. Sometimes there are hard decisions that have to be made. So be praying for your church leaders, your elders, your deacons, uh, whatever titles that, be praying for them, uh, that they can discharge their duties as God would have them to do. And then we see right here in verse 12, going back to our text, that this is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It's to build us up. And the evangelists will go, can go out and evangelize. And while the preachers and the evangelists are out evangelizing, then the pastors and teachers can be working with the, um, the uh, members and uh, edifying them. And yeah, here's a way we can uh, conclude this is based on Scripture. We have two offices here that we don't have anymore. We don't have apostles. And we don't have uh, prophets who make predictive uh, future prophecies. We do still have and an, an need evangelists. We still do have and need pastors or elders or shepherds or bishops. And we still have and we still need teachers. All of them have their particular uh, 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 duties. All of them have their particular responsibilities laid out. All of them need to be about the work of, of uh, evangelizing or of pastoring or of teaching. And so that's, uh, that's my answer that I have for you, Stevie. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity, and uh, we will see you, I guess, next month. Thanks a lot. We'll see you on the next show. All right. Thank you for your efforts. I just hope the person who asked this question, I just got it this past week. I just hope they was listening to the program to hear your answer. But thank you for your efforts tonight. All righty. Thanks for having me on. All right. Shout it out question. I seem to be having some technical difficulties. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Give your attention to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now my co-host, Tim Bent, and his subject, William Tidell. Good evening. As Stevie mentioned, my name is Tim Bench, and I'm calling in tonight from Abilene, Texas, and it is certainly a pleasure to be with you this evening. As always, we hope that each of these segments will be educational, beneficial, and scriptural. We certainly appreciate our audience. We know uh, from feedback that we have listeners all over the United States and outside the United States, so we are certainly glad that you have chosen to be with us uh, for a few minutes this evening. Tonight's lesson that I have is going to be structured a little differently than the majority of my other lessons. Tonight, I would like for us to spend some time analyzing one of the most influential leaders in church history and how his story and saga directly impacts and influences us even today. And I would like for each of us to carefully consider this story and how we might react in similar circumstances. 
when faced with egregious persecutions, where would our allegiance stand? How far would our dedication to Jesus actually go? And faced with the specter of persecution and trial and tribulation, would we wilt away in timidity or would we stand strong for Jesus Christ? Tonight, we will be discussing briefly the life and efforts from William Tyndale. And I want to start with a citation. This is from Jules Grisham in William Tyndale, Covenant Theologian, Christian Martyr, Part 1, Background and Early Biography. Quote, His life is a testimony of faithfulness to the gospel truth, even unto death at the hands of those who would gag, muffle, or otherwise silence that saving message. William Tyndale was possessed of one overwhelming passion to see that God's words in Scripture be conveyed into the hands and into the ears of the common people, that they might know the freedom of life in Christ and the joy of obeying God's gospel law of love, end quote. Let's go back some 500 years in time. In the 15th and 16th centuries, the Roman Catholic Church was at its zenith of power. The papacy and the pope not only exerted complete and de facto dominance of organized religion, but its power was so great and so dominating that the Roman Catholic Church controlled entire governments as well. Pretty much all of Europe was under the thumb of the Catholic Church, and that church controlled untold millions of people's lives from cradle to grave over the course of multiple centuries. During this era, the Catholic Church was determined to make absolutely certain of two specific things. Number one, that the Bible would not be made available to the general masses. And number two, that Latin, which even some 500 years ago was an archaic and dying language, would be decreed to be and to remain the official language for translation, interpretation, and application of the Bible. Translations into languages such as German or French or even into the emerging language of English were criminal acts, and those acts were punishable by death directly under order from the Roman Catholic Church. This is from Morris Womack in The Church Through the Ages, quote, The papacy was stronger then than in any other time of history. The church had gained victory over persecution and now ruled the state with but few exceptions. The entire life of man was dominated by religion. The church, as a visible organization, never had greater power over the minds of men. Every area of life was touched or influenced by the church, either in the religious rituals, holy days, or in everyday life. The papacy not only flourished stronger, but corruption was widespread, end quote. We mentioned Latin, and Latin would be decreed to be and to remain the official language for application of the Bible, and that kept the Bible strictly translated into Latin only would serve the purpose of keeping it under the thumb of the Catholic Church. You had overwhelming rates of illiteracy across Europe, and that would allow the Catholic Church to promote non-biblical additions to Scripture. And we could name dozens of those. That might include purgatory. It could include limbo. It could include indulgences, 
infant baptism, etc. Translations into languages such as, again, German or French or any other language were deadly. This is a quote from the Christian History Institute. Book burnings, which included Bibles, were common after 1521. Sometimes the translators and publishers themselves were also burned. Possession of Bibles became criminal offenses and often resulted in the execution of the accused. There are cases on record of people executed by order of the church for the crime of teaching their children the Lord's Prayer or the Ten Commandments in their native tongue, end quote. Several well-known opponents to the Catholic Church would emerge during this time, and they would do battle with the Church, and they would do everything within their powers to get the Bible into the hands of the masses. You had names that we know of, such as Martin Luther, most notably, but also others such as John Hughes, John Wycliffe, etc. And this evening, again, I'd like for us to spend a few moments looking at one man in particular. This is from our authorized Bible Vindicated by Benjamin Wilkinson, quote, God, who foresaw the coming greatness of the English-speaking world, prepared in advance the agent who clearly would give direction to the course of its thinking. One man stands out silhouetted against the horizon above all others as having stamped his genius upon English thought and upon the English language. And that man was William Tyndale, end quote. In 1525, with the assistance of Martin Luther, Tyndale completed the first Bible translation into English. This was a huge event in world history and in religious history. And Tyndale's goal was very simple. That was to make the Bible accessible to every man, to every woman in their native tongue, allowing people to study the words of God for themselves. This would obviously enlighten people to Catholic farces and deception, such as the sale of indulgences for the removal of sin, which Martin Luther so detested and which served as the fulcrum for his posting of the 95 Thesis famously on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And by doing this, he was effectively declaring war on the Catholic Church. Tyndale had fled Germany. He literally had bounty hunters on his trail hunting him, the price on his head courtesy of the Pope. The Catholic Church turned around and burned every Tyndale Bible it could seize, claiming that it contained thousands of errors, and possession of a Tyndale Bible literally was punishable by death by order of the Catholic Church. Again, this is absolutely staggering for us to think about today when we can walk into any store, any Walmart, and we can buy a Bible without a second thought. That has not always been the case throughout history. This is from gospelhall.com. Quote, an estimated 6,000 English New Testaments began to flood into England inside bags of wheat and bales of cotton. Nearly all were confiscated and burned in front of St. Paul's Cathedral by order of the Catholic Church and the King. An act of Parliament forbade the use of all copies of Tyndale's false translation. His translation angered Catholics and the King 
not only because the scriptures were published in English, but he deliberately selected the word ecclesia as congregation instead of church, elder in place of priest, and repentance instead of the word penance, end quote. This is from the Ancestry of Our English Bible by Ira Price, quote, As soon as Tyndale's English New Testament reached England, there was a great demand for it by the common people that they might read it and by the ecclesiastical authorities that they might burn it. The Catholic bishops literally contributed to buy up whole editions to consign to the flames. An English merchant at Antwerp by the name of Packington was a friend both of Bishop Tunstall and of Tyndale. The bishop made a contract with Packington to buy all the books he could at any cost and send them to him so that he might burn them at St. Paul's Cross, end quote. Again, this is just beyond our comprehension today. The question which immediately arises, why did Tyndale oppose the Catholic Church so strongly? Why did he view them as the enemy of all mankind? Well, he answers that question directly in a book where he's, this is entitled The Obedience of a Christian Man, published in 1528, quote, this is from Tyndale himself. The preaching of God's word is hateful and contrary unto them. Why? For it is impossible to preach Christ except thou preach against Antichrist. That is to say, them which with their false doctrine and violence of sword enforce to quench the true doctrine of Christ. And as thou cannot heal disease except thou begin at the root, even so canst thou preach against no mischief except thou begin at the bishops, end quote. Another quotation from Tyndale, this is from storyofredemption.org, and we can see quickly how he did not endear himself to the Catholic authorities, quote, I defy the Pope and all of his laws, end quote. Tyndale comments, additional Tyndale comments, which would ultimately stir the Catholic Church into action and retaliation. Again, this is from the obedience of the Christian man, quote, Christ is with us until the world's end. Let his little flock be bold, therefore, for if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us, be it they bishop, cardinals, popes, or whatsoever names they will, end quote. This is from the prologue to obedience of the Christian man, quote, This seest thou that it is the bloody doctrine of the Pope which causeth disobedience, rebellion, and insurrection. For he teacheth to fight and to defend his traditions. And whatsoever he dreameth with fire, water, and sword, and to disobey father, mother, master, lord, king, and emperor, yea, and to invade whatsoever land or nation that will not receive and admit his Godhead, where the peaceable doctrine of Christ teacheth to obey and to suffer for the word of God, and to remit the vengeance and the defense of the word of God, which is mighty and able to defend it, end quote. Tyndale's efforts are perhaps best summed up by a quotation that he's very well known for. Again, he's talking about his goal of making the Bible accessible and readable by people in their native tongues. He famously said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives the plow 
to know more of the scriptures than you do. This was speaking to the Catholic authorities. Further, now I want us to read this. This was from 1408. This goes back a while in Catholic history, but this tells us very specifically what the Catholic stance was about the Bible in English. This is from LloydThomas.org. Quote, Archbishop Arundel of Canterbury creates the Constitutions of Oxford to prevent and condemn any translations of the Bible into English or any other language and to prevent reading of the same upon pain of greater excommunication of the guilty to be accursed eating and drinking, walking and sitting, rowing and riding, laughing and weeping, in-house and in-field, on water and on land, Cursed be their head and their thoughts, their eyes and their ears, their tongues and their lips, their teeth and their throats. Persons in violation of this decree, now get this, are to be publicly burned alive. Arundel writes to the Pope describing Wycliffe's sin, as John Wycliffe's sin, as being to devise the expedient of a new translation of Scripture into the mother tongue and that Wycliffe is the son of the serpent, herald, and chief of the Antichrist, end quote. This is from Kingdom Herald, quote, In 1408, the Roman Catholic hierarchy prescribed the translation. Transgressors were under penalty of major excommunication. In 1414, a hierarchy-inspired law decreed that all who read the scriptures in English should forfeit land, cattle, life, and goods from their heirs forever. The henchmen of this vile religious gang hunted down possessors of John Wycliffe's translation as if they were wild beasts. Readers of the Bible were burned at the stake with copies of it around their necks. Children were forced to light the death fires of their own parents." And as we read these together tonight, again, let's take a moment to to appreciate how incredibly fortunate we are today, the the suffering that was endured by these people, and the afflictions put on them by the Catholic Church are almost beyond belief. Tyndale is eventually arrested. He is jailed by the Catholic authorities, and what was his crime? It was sedition, and it was violating Catholic decrees forbidding translation of the Bible. Tyndale was certain of what his fate would be, and his fear of what would soon be his fate was coupled with his environment while he was jailed. And I want to read this again. This is about Tyndale as he is being held by the Catholic authorities This is from Ronald Wesley's Facts from History about our King James Bible. Quote, Tyndale knew that his trial would be little more than a formality, but during that event he might have opportunity of speaking for his Savior, and thus he must prepare his defense well. In addition, he continued with the work so close to his heart, his writing and translation. As Tyndale toiled and the autumn of 1535 faded, his chest and head labored, he shivered through the day and shivered all night as well. As he penned, faith alone justifies before God, winter drew on and the light began to fail. He had only a few hours of daylight for writing. 
The remainder of his time he sat in darkness alone, but he must finish his work, for this was to be his end, end quote. Here are Tyndale's own words. These are written literally from within the jail cell. Quote, I suffer greatly from cold in the head. I am afflicted, much increased in this cell. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with this commissary that he will kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. I call God to record against the day we shall appear before our Lord Jesus, that I never altered one syllable of God's word against my conscience, nor would do so this day. If all that is in earth, whether it be honor, pleasure, or riches, might be given to me. End quote. Tyndale's fate is astonishing, as is the rationale for his sentence in the first place. William Tyndale would be strangled and burned at the stake by the Catholic Church, and again, for the crime of attempting to provide the Bible to as many people as possible to ensure and to spur the spread of the gospel throughout the world, and especially defying the enemies of Christ, in this case, the Catholic Church. William Tyndale would die for trying to ensure that each and every person could possess a Bible and read and study the Word of God. Again, this is a blessing that we give almost no thought of today. This is from the South Marion, Indiana Church of Christ. Quote, Tyndale obtained the full wrath of the Roman Catholic Church on October 6, 1536, when he was betrayed by friends exposed to public humiliation in an elaborate ceremony, strangled by the executioner, and after dying, his corpse was burned at the stake. His last words are recorded to have been, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. This request would be fulfilled two years later when the King announced the acceptance of the Great Bible as the standard version of the Church of England, which was largely the work of Tyndale. Tyndale's better translation later became the basis for the Geneva Bible and even the 1611 King James Version, and his ideas inspired faith to continue in the struggle to return to the biblical standard, end quote. This is from Mark Galley with Christianity Today, and I want us to carefully consider the final moments of Tyndale's life. Quote, we have but one brief description of Tyndale's execution. From descriptions of others like it, we can surmise that the execution took place in a public square, in the middle of which two great beams were set up in the form of a cross, standing about the height of a man. At the top, iron chains were fastened, and there were holes through which a rope of hemp was passed. Brushwood and logs lay at the base. After local officials took their seats, Tyndale was brought to the cross and given a chance to recant. That he refused. He was given a moment to pray. John Fox says that he cried out, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Then he was bound to the beam, and both an iron chain and a rope were put around his neck. 
gunpowder was added to the brush and to the logs. At the signal of a local official, the executioner standing behind Tyndale quickly tightened the noose, strangling him. Then an official took up a lighted torch and handed it to the executioner, who set the wood ablaze. One other brief report of that distant scene has come down to us. It was found in a letter from an English agent to Lord Cromwell two months later. They speak much, he wrote, of the patient sufferance of Master Tyndale at the time of his execution, end quote. I have another that I want us to share as we consider uh, this travesty. Again, this is from Ronald Leslie, Facts About History of the King James Bible. Quote, Early in the month of October 1536, William Tyndale was led out of the castle toward the southern gate of the town. The sun had barely risen above the horizon when he arrived at the open space and looked out over the crowd of onlookers, eagerly jostling for a good view. A circle of stakes enclosed the place of execution, and in the center was a large pillar of wood in the form of a cross and as tall as a man. A strong chain hung from the top and a noose of hemp was threaded through a hole in the upright. The attorney and the great doctors arrived first and seated themselves nearby. The prisoner was brought in and with a final appeal was made that he should recant. Tyndale stood immovable, his keen eyes gazing toward the common people. A silence fell over the crowd as they watched the prisoner's lean form and thin, tired face. His lips moved with a final impassioned prayer that echoed around the place of execution. His feet were bound to the stake. The iron chain fastened around his neck, and the hemp noose was placed at his throat. Only the Anabaptist and lapsed heretics were burned alive. Tyndale was spared that ordeal. Piles of brushwood and logs were heaped around him. The executioner came up behind the stake, and with all his force, pulled on the rope noose, within seconds, Tyndale was strangled. The attorney placed a lighted torch to the tender, and the court and commoners sat back to watch the fire burn. Not until the charred form hung limply on the chain did an officer break out the staple of the chain with his hammer, allowing the body to fall into the glowing heat of the fire. After the body was in the full heat of the fire, more brushwood was piled on top, the gathered witnesses marveled at the patient sufferance of Master Tyndale at the time of its execution, according to John Fox, end quote. From John Fox's Book of Martyrs, quote, He was tied to the stake and then strangled first by the hangman and afterwards consumed with fire in the town of Filford, A.D. 1536, crying thus at the stake with a fervent zeal and a loud voice, such was the power of the doctrine and sincerity of life of this man, this glorious martyr, that during his imprisonment he converted the keeper, his daughter, and others of his household. Also, all that were conversant with him in the castle acknowledged that if he were not a good Christian, they could not tell whom to trust. Suffice it to say that he was one of those who by his works shown as a son of light amidst a dark world, and gave evidence that he was a faithful servant of his master and savior, Jesus Christ. Again, it is beyond belief to read these reports. This again is from the South Marian Church of Christ, 
Tyndale obtained the full wrath of the Catholic Church on October 6th, 1536. He was betrayed by friends, exposed to public humiliation in an elaborate ceremony, strangled by an executioner, and after dying, his corpse was burned at the stake. His last words are recorded to have been, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. This request, again, would be fulfilled two years later when the King announced the acceptance of the Great Bible as the standard version of the Church of England, which was largely the work of Tyndale, end quote. And I want us to keep in mind so many of the Bibles that we read today, even the venerable King James, is a direct result of Tyndale's efforts. This is from Neil Lightfoot, who was a former professor of mine at Abilene Christian University. Quote, William Tyndale is the true father of the English Bible. He was the first to translate the New Testament in English based on a Greek text. He himself suffered martyrdom, but his ambition to put the hands to put the Bible in the hands of the people lived on, eventually resulting in the appearance of the illustrious King James Version. End quote. One final citation that I want to share again, this is from the Fox Book of Martyrs. Quote, William Tyndale was a special instrument appointed by the Lord as God's pickaxe to shake the inward roots and foundation of the Pope's proud churchdom. The Prince of Darkness, with his impious imps, had a special malice against him, leaving no way unsought to craftily entrap him, falsely betray him, and maliciously spill his life. For so long, the abominable doings and idolatries maintained by the clergy could not be espied because they had achieved that either the Bible should not be read at all, or if it were, that they would darken the right sense with the midst of their sophistry, and so entangle those who rebuked or despised their abominations. Wrestling the scripture unto their own purpose, contrary to the meaning of the text, they would so dilute the unlearned lay people that though, they, that though those felt in their hearts that what they were doing was false, they were unable to untangle their subtle riddles." End quote. How much does William Tyndale's impact and effort still affect us today? And again, I want us to keep this in mind each and when we when we study the Bible, when we think about the Bibles that we have. This is from F.W. Maddox in the Eternal Kingdom. Quote: The first printed English New Testament was that of William Tyndale. Tyndale's work was so skillfully done that when the King James translation was made later by the best Greek-English scholars of the world, over 90% of the final translation was still the identical work of Tyndale, end quote. Tyndale was so detested, so loathed, so abhorred, so hated by the Catholic Church that even seven years after his death, I want us to, to consider the following, quote, in 1543, the Catholic decree, an act for the advancement of true religion and for the abolishment of the contrary, stated that all manner of books of the Old and New Testament in English, being of the crafty, false, and untrue translation of Tyndale, shall be clearly and utterly abolished, extinguished, and forbidden to be kept or even used. End quote. Again, the 
the limits of the Catholic vitriol and hatred uh, against Tyndale knew no bounds. Oftentimes we will hear people make the following sort of comments. Oh, well, this was all 500 years ago. The world is different now, and Bibles and translations abound. Everyone around the world has access to a Bible now, right? Everyone around the world has access to the Word of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. According to polling data, 72% of U.S. citizens mistakenly believe that the Bible is readily available in in all languages, when in reality, of the world's 6,100 languages, less than half, 43%, have a Bible translation in their dialect. Now let those numbers sink in. There are some 7.1 billion people on this planet. That means that hundreds of millions have no access whatsoever to the Word of God, no access to the words of Jesus Christ, and tragically, no access to salvation. More directly, the question that each of us can consider tonight, what are we doing about it? There's nothing new under the sun, we are told, in the book of Ecclesiastes whether it be first century Rome or in England in the 16th century or today in numerous countries, increasingly in our own country, Christianity is not only frowned upon, but it becomes criminal. We know in North Korea that any uh, possession of religious literature uh, is punished by either imprisonment or execution or both. China, even today, places great restrictions on Bible imports and distributions, and there are numerous Muslim nations and governments which punish Christianity with impunity. Governments throughout the world and throughout history have all have done all within their power to crush and to stamp out and to eradicate Christianity. The question that each of us can ask tonight, what do you do to promote the name of Jesus Christ, even when the, quote, world around you would oppose you. William Tyndale is merely one of hundreds of examples of martyrs throughout the ages who have died as a result of ensuring that you today, that you here in 2022, centuries removed by time, thousands of miles removed by distance, you can sit in a church today with the Bible in your hands and never give it a second thought. Merely holding a Bible in your hands is a luxury that most of the world does not share even today, and yet we take it for granted. Most of the world today cannot meet for services, and we take that for granted. People were burned at the stake, literally, to help grant you these blessings, and we barely give it a second thought. From the South Warsaw Church of Christ, quote, The next time you open one of the several copies of the English Bible that you possess, think upon the blood that has been spilt to ensure that God's word could reach and save you. First and foremost, consider Christ's blood, which was shed to prepare the gospel. But do not forget God's providence in allowing the gospel to reach us over two millennia later in our common tongue. Take time to also consider God's use of people like John Wycliffe, like Martin Luther, like William Tyndale. These people died 
to ensure that you have a copy of Scripture to study for yourself. Our Bibles are stained with blood, and let us never forget that fact, end quote. As we close tonight, let's consider the following scripture from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed that is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In closing tonight, I want us to consider one final quote from Tyndale, again, which applies every bit as much today as the day it was written some 500 years ago. These are the words of William Tyndale, quote, the Church of Christ is the multitude of all those who believe in Christ for the remission of sins and who are thankful for that mercy and who love the law of God purely and who hate the sin in this world and long for the life to come, end quote. I often watch in disgust as certain Church of Christ preachers whine about being persecuted and they'll make claims that unnamed government entities are tracking their computer writings or their sermons, or because someone treated them poorly on Facebook, they will actually say with a straight face, oh, I'm being persecuted. I read in astonishment as certain Church of Christ ministers babble about their level of persecution because churches were closed down briefly at the height of the pandemic. And I read in slack-jawed disbelief as others complain about alleged persecution due to the fake news media. None of these men have any idea what persecution actually means. None. They have suffered nothing. They have lost nothing. They have lost no rights. They can speak. They can worship as they please. And they absolutely overlook the freedoms that they have and that they enjoy in this nation. And that the claim that they are persecuted by any group, anywhere, by any form of government extension is absolutely ludicrous. If anyone wants to know what persecution means, it's Jan Hughes. If anyone wants to know what persecution means, it is John Wycliffe. And if anyone wants to know what persecution means, it is the story of William Tyndale. It is those who were put to death in the most horrific ways possible by the Catholic Church, and it's those who died, literally, to promote the Bible across this globe. William Tyndale risked his family for the Word of God. William Tyndale risked and lost his worldly possessions for the Word of God. William Tyndale ran for his life and went into hiding and smuggled Bibles into England, all for the Word of God. And William Tyndale would ultimately pay the ultimate price, his own life, as his punishment for his dedication and zeal and determination that the Bible should be in the hands of the common man. He was willing to risk and even lose his own life in the name of Jesus Christ. Tonight, what would you be willing to risk? 
What would you be willing to lose? What price would you be willing to pay? Again, examples abound throughout history of people burned at the stake and tortured and imprisoned, and yet many professed Christians today find it inconvenient to even invite someone to church. Or it's too much trouble to host a Bible study in their homes. Or they're too busy to attend church services and certainly don't have any extra money to spend on evangelism efforts of the church or missionary support. Many of us today cannot even evangelize if doing so cramps our own busy schedules. William Tyndale and hundreds of others were not too busy or inconvenienced or trouble to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, and neither should we be today. Does Jesus become an afterthought in your daily routine behind work or mowing the yard or paying the bills and the other mundane demands of life? Or is Jesus the reason for your being? Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Is spreading the word of Jesus to every remote corner of the globe your overriding passion? And is it enough of a passion that you would be willing to do without and suffer and face loss for it? So tonight, where is your focus? Where is your heart? Where is your allegiance? Is it on self or is it on others, others that you may well never even meet or know? As always, we want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. We hope that this segment and all segments are always beneficial to you and your scriptural walk. We hope that you will have a wonderful evening and join us next week. Thank you. You promised me that you would be there for me. You would be there. You told me if trials come away, if I would be still and still obey, you'd show me the way. You promised me, yes, you did. That you would be there for me You would be there You told me that you would Be my guide In your will I will abide You stay by my side You'll never change Lord, Lord, you promised me You'd be the same, be the same. Me. 
Listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Oh, I woke up early this morning. My heart was beating right on time. I said, Lord, I truly thank you for opening up these eyes of mine. And then I went over to my window. And while looking through the blind, once again I had to tell him, thank you, Lord, for letting me see another day. Now the sun was shining bright, the wind was blowing not too strong. In a treetop, just a little feet away, was a robin singing the song. I don't 
know what he was saying And pretty soon he was on his way Who can say he wasn't being grateful And say thank you for another day Everybody ought to praise his name Be thankful and praise his name Everybody ought to praise his name Oh yeah If a robin can say thank you You can do it too. the story I live to tell the story 